um, what's coming up. Um, over the next three weeks, uh, there'll be three different men in the pulpit. Um, so next Sunday morning, we've got Bradley Trout. The following Sunday, we have Cornet, and then on the 30th, Amiel is stepping into the pulpit, which is great. And then for next term, uh, we're going to do a series called The Majesty of God. I have thought we were going to continue through Old Testament narrative, but I think just listening to one or two people, it really is important that we get a good, sound uh, understanding of the doctrine of God in our minds, and for that we will be in a number of different Old Testament passages. So I do um, urge you to pray for that, and uh, make sure you're here for it. But this morning it's Romans, and uh, I'm going to ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for the tremendous privilege of an open Bible. And on this Pentecost Sunday, when we celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, we do ask for a special pouring out of your grace to us now, as we come to this great chapter. What we know not will you teach us, what we have not will you give us, and what we are not will you make us. And we ask it for Christ our Saviour's sake. Amen. Last Thursday was the 75th anniversary of D-Day, when the Allies landed 160,000 soldiers on the Normandy beaches and began to liberate Europe from occupation by Nazi Germany. And I don't know whether you saw any of it on the television screens. There was quite a lot of coverage this week. But there were tremendous celebrations in Europe as world leaders gathered to remember all those who gave their lives to bring an end to that particular tyranny. Now, of course, it wasn't just a European war. Uh, Fifty different nations joined together to fight against Nazi Germany Japan and the Axis powers. So it was a global conflict with global significance. And uh, all of us here this morning have good reason to thank God for what those soldiers did to secure the freedoms we enjoy today. But 75 years later, I think it is worth asking if our generation would do what that previous generation did. Because in the West, there has been a significant shift in values. Of course, there are many, many people who serve their countries selflessly in difficult circumstances. But surely we have to admit that in the last generation, there has been a significant shift in attitudes that makes it hard to imagine such a willingness to serve. There is generally less respect for authority, less respect for parents, less respect for country. In fact, many people have very little respect for anyone apart from themselves and their immediate family. So there's little respect and very little sense of responsibility. As a result, community life everywhere is under threat. There doesn't seem to be much sense, does there, of obligation towards other people. 
Now the point for us this morning is that this is not something that any particular government can put right. Because what's needed is a change of heart. It's a change that means instead of looking within and thinking, how can I best serve myself and those closest to me, that there is a sense of looking outwards and thinking, how can I serve God? How can I serve other people, my community, my country? Now that is a change that God alone can achieve through the Gospel. And that is the change that is being put before us in the remaining chapters of the book of Romans. Uh, We've been discovering, haven't we, that Romans is a terrific Gospel book. It begins with what God has done for us in Christ in chapters 1 to 11. Those chapters are all about the mercy of God and the fact that we deserve nothing from God except his condemnation. But he loves us. And he's loved us in the most sacrificial way imaginable by sending his son to die for us and sending his spirit to transform us. And then we've seen in the last couple of weeks that from chapter 12 onwards there's a shift. So now the focus is that in the light of everything that God has done for us, here's what we are to do as those who belong to him. And uh, it's a life of worship. It's a life of wholehearted consecration. The offering of all that I have and all that I am in a life of sacrificial worship to the God who sent his Son to die for me. Now last week we looked at most of chapter 12 and we began to see what this life of worship looks like in practice. And we saw that the focus is on our new relationships and especially our relationships with other believers in the local church. Paul says we are to be devoted to one another in brotherly love. How are we doing with that this past week? But now in chapter 13, we're thinking about Christian behaviour in the wider community outside the church. It's a chapter that I think is profoundly challenging to our generation, where there's very little sense of responsibility for anything or anyone beyond our immediate circle. But Paul says here quite clearly that Christian people are to be responsible people. Firstly, he says that we are to embrace the civic responsibility we have to submit to the state, verses 1 to 7. Then he describes the social responsibility we have to love our neighbours, verses 8 to 10. And then he shows us the moral responsibility we have to live differently in verses 11 to 14. Now because we generally don't spend much time thinking about our relationship with the state, we're going to spend most of our time on verses uh, 1 to 7, but I will cover those other two points rather briefly at the end. 
So, we begin with our civic responsibility to submit to the state. Now, that is a call for us to be conscientious citizens. And I think what the Apostle Paul writes here is all the more remarkable when we remember that at that particular time there were no Christian rulers anywhere in the Mediterranean world. In those days, all the rulers were either Roman or Jewish and they were either unfriendly or openly hostile to the Christian church. But Paul reminds us that God has established these non-Christian rulers and authorities. And God wants his people to submit to the state and to cooperate with it. So we're going to divide this part of the passage in two. The first is the authority of the state in verses 1 to 3. Then secondly, there is the ministry of the state in verses 4 to 7. Now the authority of the state is there quite clearly in verse 1. Paul begins with a clear command which has universal application. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. Now why? Because the authority of the state is derived from God. And Paul repeats that truth three times so that we will understand it and never forget it. So in the second part of verse 1 he says, For there is no authority except that which God has established. Then in the last part of verse 1, the authorities that exist have been established by God. And then again at the beginning of verse 2, consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. So, this is the authority of the state which has been instituted and established by Almighty God. And it means that the state is a divine institution with divine authority. And Christians are to submit and not rebel. Christians are neither subversives nor anarchists. And yet, and yet, even as I say these things, I know perfectly well just how uncomfortable some of you are feeling. You're not sure that you can fully accept this teaching. And you know that these commands from Paul badly need to be qualified. So we proceed immediately to the qualifications. And there are two of them. Qualification number one. Paul did not mean that all evil rulers, uh, that is to say the Caligulas, the Herods, 
and the Nero's of his own day, or the Kim Jong-uns, the Al-Bashirs, or the Assad's of our day, he did not mean that all these evil rulers have been personally appointed by God and that God is responsible for their evil behaviour. Of course not. What Paul meant is that all human authority, including parental authority, all human authority is derived from God. And we can say to evil rulers today what the Lord Jesus Christ said to Pontius Pilate in his day. You would have no authority at all over me if it were not given to you from above. Pilate, you remember, misused the authority he had been given, which had been delegated to him by God. But although he misused it, the authority still came from God. So it was divine authority misused by a human authority. Now that is qualification number one. I do hope we've all got it clear in our minds. Qualification number two is this. Paul did not mean that Christians must submit to rulers irrespective of all their laws and edicts. Romans 13 is frequently misapplied by oppressive rulers as if it gives them a free hand to develop their own tyranny and to demand unconditional obedience. A number of years ago I had the great pleasure of meeting Michael Cassidy uh, who was the founder, is the founder of African Enterprise and I discovered we went to the same college and almost failed the same course. In any event, in the days before the apartheid regime was dismantled, Michael Cassidy bravely protested against it. And on one occasion he was granted a personal audience with President P.W. Boerter. When he entered the meeting room, the President stood up and immediately began to read out Romans 13 as if he thought this particular text would justify the evils that his government were pursuing. So, my dear friends, the question is this. Granted that the authority of rulers is derived from God, what happens when they abuse it? What happens if they reverse their God-given duty so that they commend those who are evil and punish those who are good. Does the requirement to submit still stand in a morally perverse situation like that? And again, we say, of course not. I do hope we know our Bibles well enough to realise that the principle is this. We are to submit to the state right up to the point where obedience to the state involves us in disobedience to God. And at that point 
it is our clear Christian duty to disobey the state in order to obey God. So if the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands, our Christian duty is to resist and not to submit. As the Apostle Peter said to the Sanhedrin, we must obey God rather than men. So friends, in certain circumstances, civil disobedience is a plain Christian duty. And there are several excellent examples in the Bible. For example, when Pharaoh, the ruler of Egypt, instructed the Hebrew midwives to drown the baby Hebrew boys, they refused. At the beginning of the book of Exodus, we read that the midwives feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had commanded them. Then later in the book of Daniel, when King Nebuchadnezzar issued an edict that all his subjects must fall down and worship his golden image, you remember that Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego refused to obey and for their pains they were thrown into a blazing furnace uh, from which ultimately God delivered them. Let me give you a more recent example, this time not from scripture but again from South African history. In 1957, Hendrik Verhoet announced the Native Laws Amendment Bill and it contained a church clause which would have prevented any association between different racial groups in church, school, hospital, club or any other institutional place of entertainment. We couldn't have met like this this morning. The Anglican Archbishop of Cape Town at the time was a gentle and very gracious scholar by the name of Geoffrey Clayton. And after much careful thought and prayer, he decided with the bishops they must disobey. So he wrote to the Prime Minister that if the bill were to become law, he would be, quote, unable to obey it, or to counsel our clergy and people to do so. Very sadly, the very next morning, the Archbishop died. Some say he died because of the pain and the strain of civil disobedience, because for the Christian, civil disobedience is never a light matter. But you see, what he did was absolutely biblical and absolutely right. So, are you with me so far? We are to submit to the state's God-given authority, but at the same time we remember that its authority was given for a particular rather than a totalitarian purpose, and the authority of the state is qualified in the two ways I have mentioned. Well, now we move on from the authority of the state to the ministry of the state in verses 4 to 7. Now, the big surprise here 
is that the state's authority is given with a view to ministry. So just as three times the apostle has affirmed the authority of the state, so now three times he affirms the ministry of the state. Come with me to the beginning of verse 4. For he, that is the state, the state is God's servant, literally in the original, God's minister. The state is God's minister to do you good. Then again at the end of verse 4. He is God's servant, God's minister, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. And then in the middle of verse 6, for the authorities are God's servants, again literally, God's ministers. Now, the surprise here is that the phrase ministers of God that is being used in this passage to describe servants of the state is precisely the same phrase that's used elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the servants of the church. In other words, it is perfectly possible to engage in the service of God in the state, just as it is in the church. Now that means some of us here this morning need to change our understanding of ministry. Friends, we should never refer to pastors as just ministers. We should never refer to anybody going into the ordained ministry by saying, oh, he's going into the ministry. Because if we say that, we're giving the impression that pastoral ministry is the only ministry there is. So when somebody says to you, did you know that Elias is going into the ministry? The correct response is, oh really? Which ministry are you talking about? And if they say, well, the pastoral ministry of course, then we can reply, well why didn't you say so? Because the word ministry means nothing until you specify what ministry you're talking about. It could be pastoral ministry, it could be social ministry, it could be medical ministry, it could be educational ministry, the list goes on and on. And the point is that ministers of the state, that is to say members of parliament, civil servants, magistrates, police and so on, are just as much ministers of God as pastors. As Paul reminds us in verse 6, they are God's servants, even if they don't realise it. So, what then is the ministry that God has entrusted to officials of the state? Come with me to the end of verse 3. Do what is right, and he will commend you. Middle of verse 4. If you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, to put it more simply, the function of the minister of the state 
is to promote and reward the good and on the other hand to restrain and punish evil. Now let's think briefly about each of those for a moment. First of all, the punishment of evil. Now unfortunately we haven't got enough time this morning to explore just what Paul means by that phrase in verse 4 that he does not bear the sword for nothing and whether that refers to capital punishment or not. It's a very important question and it would be good for us to come back to it at another time but we don't have time to cover it adequately today. What we do need to do is to contrast chapter 12 verse 19 with chapter 13 and verse 4. In chapter 12 verse 19, can we all see it in our Bibles? We're told we are not to take revenge. Instead we are to leave room for God's wrath because justice belongs to him and he will punish all evil. But then, when we look at chapter 13, verse 4, God's wrath, which one day is going to fall on all evildoers, operates today through the due processes of the law and the administration of justice. So, if we're thinking biblically, we're going to need to hold chapter 12, verse 19 and chapter 13, verse 4 in harmony with each other. As private individuals, we are not authorised to take the law into our own hands. We are not authorised to judge or punish people. The punishment of evil is the prerogative of God. He'll do it finally and perfectly at the judgment of the last day but he begins to do it now through the law courts and in this passage we're being taught that the law courts are the means by which God's wrath begins to fall on evildoers today Now, do the law courts do this perfectly all the time? No, of course they don't. But however imperfect they might be, friends, they are God's provision for the restraint of evil without which our society would descend into anarchy and our lives would literally be a living hell. But then we must move on from punishing evil to rewarding good. Now most countries have different ways of recognising and rewarding good citizenship. Some do it through an honours system, uh, including medals of various kinds, or prizes. We think of the Nobel Peace Prize, for example. And as I mentioned earlier, at the D-Day celebrations this week, Leaders from all around the world paused to remember those who gave their lives for their country. And in most cases, the names of those people have been recorded on war memorials so they would never be forgotten. Now, while that kind of recognition of worthy citizenship is good, 
We have to say, don't we, that it is the exception rather than the rule. And I think it's a rather sad fact that most countries are rather better at punishing evil than they are at rewarding good. And I wonder if South Africa isn't one of those countries where we would do well to improve the system of rewards and recognition of exemplary citizenship. I leave you to think further about that. In any event, notice that Paul concludes this paragraph by referring to the raising and paying of taxes. Just interesting to reflect, I think, that taxation was widespread in the ancient world. I think they had accountants even then, Michael. Uh, There were land taxes, there were import and export duties, and Paul puts taxation firmly under the authority of the state in verse 6. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants in this matter. See, the political parties might disagree with one another on the amount of tax we should pay, but whatever our political position might be, all of us need to agree that the state must provide certain essential services and taxpayers must foot the bill. And so for that reason, dear friends, Christians accept their tax liability with good grace. Tax evasion is not an option for the Christian. So all of that is our responsibility to the state. And I personally think it's a very wonderful thing that all those centuries ago, the Apostle Paul should outline so clearly the authority and the ministry which God has given to the state. And Paul's message is that all Christians, without exception, are to submit to the state, recognising it as God's gracious provision, whilst at the same time remembering those two important qualifications. So now we move on from the civic responsibility we have to our social responsibility. Love your neighbour. Come with me to verse 8. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. He's saying, pay all your debts quickly, whether it's to the government in taxation or anybody you might owe money to, but there is one debt you will never be able to pay off, and that is the debt to love one another. This is very challenging because we tend to think like this. Um, I did that good turn for the old lady down the road when she was ill. I got her shopping. Or I gave money to that homeless ministry. So I've done enough loving this week. Or we say, uh, for many, many years, I've really poured myself into the family as the kids have been growing up been a huge amount of effort. I've worked really hard at my job in order to provide. But now the children have left home and it's me time. It's our time 
And God says, no it's not. You will never be able to discharge the debt to love your neighbour. Whenever you are interacting with anybody, no matter how much loving you might have done in the past, keep loving now. That means those you know well, those you've never met, those who are like you, those who are unlike you, those who even dislike you, love them. Because he who loves has fulfilled the law. He's speaking here specifically about the second tablet of the law, which you remember God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai, which sums up our responsibility to other people. And the fundamental principle behind it is love your neighbour as yourself. So, Paul quotes a number of them. Do not commit adultery. Now, obviously, if I love my neighbour, I won't sleep with his wife, which would undermine and potentially destroy his marriage. Again, the law says, do not murder. And if I love my neighbour, then I won't wish him dead, whatever he might have done to me. And instead of looking for opportunities to knock him down with hateful words and malicious actions, I should be thinking, how can I make his week better? Even that bank manager who's refused my loan, or that lecturer at college who hasn't given me the right mark in my exam, or the person at work who always seems to make my life difficult, love them And the law says, do not steal, do not covet. So if I love my neighbour, I won't be thinking, what can I take from him? How can I use him for my advantage? I won't resent what she's got or be jealous about it. Rather, I'll want to serve her and share with her. And verse 10 gives us the reason. Love does no harm to its neighbour, therefore love is the fulfilment of the law. What he's saying, listen to this, is that love and law belong together. Because God's law gives love direction. It tells me what it actually means in practice to love my neighbour. And love gives law inspiration. In other words, I'm not just going to do the bare minimum, just tick it off on my to-do list. Now, if I love my neighbour, I'm going to go the extra mile. That's what Jesus did. And, of course, it took him to the cross. Now, yes, I have broken God's law. I haven't loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind and strength. I have not love my neighbour as myself. So I deserve God's condemnation. But because Jesus went the extra mile for me and obeyed the law perfectly, took upon himself the judgement I deserve, I have received forgiveness and friendship 
with him. And now, now his Holy Spirit is filling me so I really can begin to fulfil the law in the way that Paul's talking about here, by loving my neighbour in the strength that he provides. My dear friends, these things are not theoretical. They really are possible. So there's our social responsibility to love our neighbour with the power of God. And then finally and very briefly, there is our moral responsibility to live differently in verses 11 to 14. Verse 11, Paul says, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, the day is almost here. In other words, the key is we've got to understand the time we're living in. You see, ever since human beings turned away from God, darkness has descended on the earth. Darkness within our own hearts and darkness in the world. The world is not as it should be because we pushed God out. But God is a God of infinite love. And so for years he promised that the light would come into the darkness, a light we didn't deserve. And of course that light came when the Lord Jesus was born. And when he lived that shining life and died that sacrificial death. And then he rose and ascended into heaven. And if we put our trust in him, we leave behind the kingdom of darkness and we come into the kingdom of light. The problem is, in this present age, the darkness still surrounds us. Because most people are still rejecting God. It means it's hard for us. But we're called to live in the light of the future. The day when Jesus Christ comes again and God's light shines and flourishes and finally banishes all the darkness away. And so in light of that, Paul says we've got to be different from the darkness. End of verse 12. Let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armour of light. Let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Those things belong to the night. But if we're trusting in Christ, we are people of the day. There was a young man who was in terrible turmoil. He'd lived a dissolute life, uh, mainly sexually, but in other ways as well. But his mother was a Christian, and she prayed and prayed for her son over many, many years. Largely because of her influence, he went to church. And uh, as he heard the message of the gospel, he was profoundly challenged. And he started to believe that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, the Saviour, the Lord of the world. But there was this ongoing battle 
in his heart. Because on the one hand, he felt himself to be drawn to Christ, but on the other hand, he really didn't want to change his lifestyle. And it was whilst that battle was raging within him that one day he was sitting in a garden and he heard a little child playing over the wall, saying over and over again, pick it up and read, pick it up and read, pick it up and read. And he took that as a word from God, went home, picked up a Bible, Bible fell open at Romans 13, and he read these words. Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness and all the rest. Verse 14, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. The year was 386 AD. That young man was Augustine of Hippo. Went on to become the greatest theologian of the early church, possibly the greatest theologian ever. And yet, you see, it's an old story, but it is profoundly contemporary. And maybe there's somebody here this morning and you've never yet responded to Christ. And you've got this exact same battle going on inside you. God is saying to you this morning through Romans 13. Clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust in him and his death for your forgiveness. Be transformed by his Holy Spirit. And what is a challenge for somebody to come to Christ for the first time is a challenge for all of us to live in the light, to live in obedience to Christ. Now what does that mean? It means changing our relationships in the way that Paul described in Romans 12 as we looked at last week and it means embracing our new responsibilities in chapter 13 by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, our civic responsibility to submit to the state, our social responsibility to love our neighbour and our moral responsibility to live differently. Let me pray. Father, we're sorry that so very often we live for ourselves with hardly a thought for other people. Father, we need you, please, to change our hearts by the gospel and the power of your spirit that we might live for you and live for others for the glory of your name.